0: Hey, deserving listeners. Today's episode is going to be a long, long episode. It's a deep dive that I've been working on for a few months now. And the deep dive is on avoidant personality disorder. This is going to be a patron only episode, by the way. So if you're not a patron, you won't be able to listen to the full episode. This is the first episode in a series that I'm going to be doing on loneliness in general. Lots of people suffer from loneliness. I get emails about it every almost every day. I talk with clients about it. I talk with supervisees and students about it. Loneliness is uh, very, I don't know, it's highly prevalent. And I've never felt very good in the way that I help people with their loneliness. I've found some success with some people. But with a lot of people, when I try to help them, it never really works, especially when people email me because I don't have a lot. I, they're not clients, and I can't really get into it with them. And I've come to realize that the typical advice that people give about reducing loneliness is useless, like telling people to, you know, just get out there. Just get out there. Be yourself you know, try to make friends, cultivate relationships, maybe dating apps or Facebook groups, or, you know, you have to pursue your friends, cultivate long-term relationships, reach out to others. Sometimes you got to put up with flaky friends. Um, maybe always say yes to social events or be vulnerable. You know, all this is good advice, but I've worked with people individually with this kind of thing and found that it doesn't do anything. None of these things have have really worked. Sometimes they do, but you know most people that i talk about these things with it they just remain lonely year after year after year and it makes me really really sad for them because the these people that i know i know to be lovely likable interesting dynamic human beings who Anyone would be happy to have a, to be have uh, their friend. I often think about because <laughs> I have multiple people telling me that they're lonely. I often think about, well, how come all those people don't just get together and eliminate all their loneliness all at once? Well, it's not that simple as what I have found. It is not easy to eliminate loneliness in your life. It is usually perceived as a very simple thing, we'll just make friends, just build friends. It is not that simple. There are so many different things that can get in the way of curing your own loneliness. There are so many different things that can hamper one's efforts to reduce loneliness. There are so many different things that can create gravitational pull towards loneliness. So I decided to really look into all the different types of loneliness you know as long-term listeners know i love doing deep dives and i have a long list of things that i want to do deep dives on and this just really stuck out because of how common i get this question of i can't i can't seem to keep friends or i try to have groups of friends and i i i see other people being friends with each other and i don't have that Or when I'm in social situations, I get real anxious. Or I don't think anyone is capable of really liking me. You know, there's just so many different types of loneliness. And so I want to look into all the different types of loneliness. And this is the first episode. And it's just one tiny percentage piece of the pie about loneliness, which is called avoidant personality disorder. Other topics that I want to look into around loneliness are social anxiety, which is very common. I also want to look into how our culture is becoming more and more isolated from each other. I want to look into schizoid personality disorder. I want to revisit, which I've visited in the past, incels, involuntary celibates, MGTOW, men going their own way, and the pickup artist community. I want to look into schizotypal personality disorder, depression, schemas that impede one's ability to make and keep friends people who lack social skills. What are social skills exactly? Seattle freeze, people have been asking me to go into the Seattle freeze for since the beginning of this podcast. If you're not familiar, the Seattle freeze is this notion that in Seattle, it's very cold socially. And that when people move to Seattle, they have a really hard time making friends because they feel frozen out of relationships. And as someone who's lived in Seattle his whole life myself, I don't really see that. <laughs> I find Seattle people to be very warm. I like to consider myself to be very warm. But what does the data show? What, why would Seattle have that perception? If it is true, why would that be? I also want to look into autism spectrum, how that can uh, contribute to loneliness, ADHD, how to make, I just want to talk about generally speaking, how do you make friends and how do you keep them? I want to look at attachment styles, avoidant attachment in particular. I want to talk about how how do you meet your soulmate and keep them, because a lot of people are lonely, not just for friends, but for a soulmate and companion. I also, I also want to conclude the whole deep dive by just talking about loneliness in general. That's my end goal is I want to do deep dives on all these topics. It's going to take me a while to get through all of them, I think, but I want to do all these different, probably, I don't know, looks like 15 different deep dives. And at the end, as I learn and do all this research, I want to conclude with a final episode on pulling it all together. Because a lot of this has to do with my own desire to get a good handle on what loneliness is in general, the different types, and how to really help people when they email me about this, that I would be able to say, well, here are some things that I've learned as a distillation of everything that I've read, all the research and all the thinking that I've done about this. And of course, listen to the loneliness deep dive episodes and particularly the last one, because that's when I pull it all together. I'm also guessing that as I research this topic, there are going to be other subtopics that will emerge that I haven't thought of. And I'll do deep dives on those episodes as well. So, again, this episode is just for patrons of the podcast. So if you're not a patron, this episode will end soon before the content begins. If you want to listen to this whole episode, along with all the other deep dives, and along with all the other deep dives that I've ever done, I've done hundreds of deep dives that are arguably our best episodes, you have to become a patron of the podcast by going to patreon.com. That's patreon.com. Go to our page, Psychology in Seattle, and become a patron. And when you become a patron, you'll get instructions on how to access this episode and the hundreds of other patron only episodes. If you are a patron and you're on YouTube, you might not know this, but you can listen to Patreon episodes, patron only episodes on Patreon.com. They're there every time as they're getting posted. You can also listen on our website. There's a way to access them on our website. As a patron, and you can also subscribe to the patron feed on a phone podcatcher on a phone app that's designed for podcast listening. So there's those are the three different ways: Patreon.com website and your phone podcatcher to access premium episodes. But you only have access to that through your Patreon membership. And as always, if you have trouble accessing it, go to go to PsychologyInSeattle.com. Click on the contact page. And we're here to help you get access to premium premium episodes. So again, uh, if you're not a patron, this episode is going to end, and I apologize for that. Uh, you know, I, I get that you're gonna. If you're not a patron, this is going to upset you. But um, this is how I make a living. <laughs> <laughs> All right, welcome to the Patron Zone, people. Thank you so much for for becoming a patron. And I can't tell you how happy I am to finally be doing deep dives again. I finally have some time available to me. Work at the university has been pretty busy, and so I am looking forward to doing this. I don't know how long it's going to take me to get them all out, honestly, but uh, I have high hopes. So avoidant personality disorder, what is it? Well, in a nutshell, and I'm going to go into full detail, as y'all know that I do, but in a nutshell, it's extreme shyness or pathological shyness. You know, we all know what shyness feels like. Everyone has had a shy moment in their life, some people more than others. But I would say everyone has had a moment where they feel reticent or hesitant about saying something in a crowd or they don't it's a new situation they don't know people very well and there's different degrees of shyness uh when i think about perhaps my most recent shy episode i as i age honestly i get a lot less shy but when i was younger i would i would get more shy but recently i i I had a moment at work where we were in a large group and we're all going around introducing ourselves and there's something about that that just triggers me I don't know what it is but as the you know everyone was going in turn and as the as it was becoming my turn I could feel my heart starting to race and my hands start to sweat and I was in my head about like, okay, what do I say that won't sound stupid? I want to come across as easygoing and funny, but not narcissistic. And I don't want to draw attention to myself, but I, I want to be short, but not like I'm being a jerk, like I'm being short, all that kind of stuff. And then of course, when it gets to my turn, I say something stupid and then no one really cares and we, and we move on. <laughs> so we all know what that feels like, right? We all know what shyness feels like. And we probably all know people who are particularly shy, that person who who doesn't talk that much at work or at a party or something, the person who seems aloof. But for those with avoidant personality disorder, it's debilitating. And it borderlines on delusional in terms of the way that they perceive things like – when i was in my head in that moment as i'm thinking oh god it it's coming around to me i'm going to have to introduce myself uh, what if everyone thinks i'm stupid that'll be a bad thing that is a common thought but to the avoidant personality disordered person they might be convinced that other people are thinking negatively about them and i'll get more into that later whereas for me if you just stopped me and said dude do, do you think people really care about the way you're going to introduce yourself? I would say no. I, I don't think anyone cares. But my body seems to care would be the thing. Also, people with avoidant personality disorder can have a lot of obsessions around those things. So for me in that moment, I had the shyness attack that lasted a couple of minutes. To the avoidant personality disorder person, they're going to think about it maybe 24-7. Again, I'll get more into that later. The interesting thing that I found in my research is that it's possible, it's hard to tell because of error bars, but it's possible that avoidant personality disorder is the most common personality disorder, which is interesting. Because if you asked anyone, okay, what's the most prevalent talked about uh, personality disorder, all of you know that it's borderline. Borderline personality disorder is talked about all the time, or at least in relative to other personality disorders. So isn't it interesting that avoidant personality disorder might be, uh, you know, 50% more, 100% more, 200% more, you're very likely to know people with avoidant personality disorder is the thing. So as I was researching it, I I wanted to start this episode with a very personal story about something that would feel like avoidant personality disorder, so that we can kind of get into the mood of it. I don't suffer from avoidant personality disorder. Uh, in fact, I would, be, I have things that protect me from even developing that. Now, I can definitely be shy. I can definitely be in my head, but um, but I don't suffer from this. But I, I was trying to think of a moment because with all personality disorders, aside from maybe a couple, we've all had moments where we exhibit traits or you know, momentary moments of that personality disorder, if you will. So we've all had moments of semi-delusional, obsessional shyness, the pathological, debilitating shyness. We've all had that. And I was trying to think of a moment in my life where I had that, and I've probably, I've had many, but the one that really sticks out in my mind it happened in the third grade. And let me, and since this has got to be a, Long ass episode. I might as well luxuriate in that space by just describing this in full, because you know, hopefully, you'd be interested. <laughs> um, I remember this moment like it was yesterday, and it would have been 1979. I'm thinking. I it was the first day of third grade, and second grade was wonderful. There was a lot of socializing there. For me, second grade was like 1967 summer of love in that all of us in the second grade, at least in my class and my friends, we lacked any kind of self-consciousness. And when we wanted a back rub, we'd ask for a back rub. When we wanted to play nice, we played nice. And I just felt like there was a, we had a group of friends and it was really our entire class from my memory it just felt like a very warm, accepting. There was no bullying. It was just, it was very positive. That was my memory of it. And I remember remembering that in the third grade because the third grade was much different than that. And I, I always hypothesized that there's some kind of de- developmental shift that happens around that age that facilitates more self-consciousness and thus more distance and more bullying. Well, the first day of third grade... I, I, I always walked to school. My my elementary school was a, was a mile from my house, and it still is from my parents' house, and I, I would walk to school. And so I get to school, and how do I say this? So I had a girlfriend in the second grade. She, you know, second grade kind of girlfriend. Her name was Heather. And I really liked her, and it was second grade that we probably – just, I think we were just considered a thing, if you know what mean she, she took me to see Xanadu in the theaters, <laughs> and she put her head on my shoulder, and her mom drove us to the movie theater, and the mom sat in the back so that we could sit together while watching Xanadu with Olivia Newton-John. And uh, it was a very magical moment for me. <laughs> so over the summer, I never saw her because – We don't have any way of seeing each other back then. And so come the first day of third grade, I am really looking forward to seeing her. And I'm also thinking, well, you know, everyone else in the school kind of knows we're a thing. What is this going to look like when we see each other? Because I think she was in my class. And so as I'm walking to school, I'm really up in my head. I'm like, you know, what do I say to her? What does she say to me? What are other people going to say when they see us together? Uh, What if Heather doesn't acknowledge me? What if Heather is like someone else? Like normal kinds of thoughts that run through your mind, I suppose. And I was so in my head about it. And in my head, I mean obsessively overthinking, uh, uh, focusing on worst case scenarios. And what we did in that class in the third grade is we would line up outside the door uh, before and it was outside. <laughs> uh, all of our schools in Issaquah were uh, had blueprints that were stolen or borrowed from California schools, for whatever reason, where the weather is a lot warmer. And so even though in the winter and the fall it can be quite cold and rainy, all the floor plans are um, outdoors. Anyway, so I'm outdoors and I'm in line and I'm, I'm early and I'm, like first in line. So I I'm sitting there in line and I'm thinking about okay what do I say what what do I do and I'm staring down at my feet and then one by one people start lining up for cl- for to get into class for the first day of school and I'm so terrified that I'm just staring at my feet hoping that no one can see me and I remember this so distinctly all I wanted to do was just get through the day I just wanted to get into class I wanted to be invisible And I knew I wasn't invisible. And the longer I stared at my feet, the longer I was convinced, the more I was convinced that everyone was staring at me, going, Kirk is staring at his feet. And these were kids that I knew well. These were kids that, because I grew up in the same neighborhood in my entire childhood, and these were kids that I went to preschool with. So I'd known them for four or five years. These are people that... I was friends with that we played together on the playground all the time. So these weren't strangers <laughs> and yet I'm staring at my feet just every second that was crawling by. I just, you know, it's, and I, and I kept thinking, well, you know, maybe Heather is in line. Well, maybe I should look up and look for her, but no, if you look up, then you'll do something stupid and just, just get through this moment. You just have to get through the moment. Everyone's looking at you, uh, and if you look up, it, it'll it'll look weird because all of a sudden you're looking up, and so you just just look at your feet. Look at your feet. I don't know what happened after that, <laughs> but I'm pretty sure the rest of the, of the day and the year went fine. But there was something about that moment where it was so hard for me, where I was so beyond the pale of typical shyness. Well, that's the only moment in my life that I can point to. Where I can relate to someone with avoidant personality disorder. People with avoidant personality disorder, that's how they are their entire lives. It's not just third grade. It's when they're in the 10th grade. It's when they're 25. It's when they're 45. It's when they go to the, sh- the shopping mall or the grocery store or when they're at the park or when they go to work. This is how they feel all the time. Maybe not to that degree, but, but maybe and maybe worse. So that's what it feels like, the this extreme self-consciousness, this extreme self-shaming um, kinds of notions, this extreme notion that other people will judge you and that other people are, of course, looking at you and thinking bad things about you. Now, I want to also say that people avoidant with avoidant personality disorder are different people, just like... Everyone with borderline is different. Everyone with avoidant attachment is different. Everyone with secure attachment is different. Everyone with avoidant personality disorder is different. There are some commonalities, there are different presentations. So I just want to plant that seed as well. As I describe avoidant personality disorder, try not to think of like one monolithic human being. It's a very, it's one aspect of that person, it doesn't define the whole person. Also, as I talk about the descriptions in full, think about a few shy people you know or yourself. Now, of course, you can't diagnose unless you're a clinician, but you might gain some insight into this first installment on the loneliness deep dives. People with avoidant personality disorder will tend to describe themselves as lonely and doomed to always be lonely. They they generally, not all think that they are doomed to be lonely the rest of their lives there's just no way out of it they might also describe themselves as socially anxious or socially phobic or extremely socially anxious they might also describe themselves not all as being awkward and terribly awkward like pathologically awkward meaning that everyone knows they're awkward they know they're awkward They come across as awkward. They're bothering other people with their awkwardness, that kind of thing. They will also describe themselves as pretty insecure. And they might even describe themselves as being unworthy of friendship. So it's not just that they're shy, you're seeing here. There's something about their identity that is unfair to them, which we'll get into. So the descriptions I'm going to throw at you, we're going to spend a lot of time describing it. Because personality disorders are weird. I mean, not They're not weird people, but it's, it's very complex. It's not very intuitive. And I'll get into the causes later. So the first thing I'm going to do is I'm just going to rattle off a lot of descriptors just to kind of give us a lay of the land. Then I'm going to talk about uh, subtypes. Then I'm going to talk about how they pre- generally present. And then I'm going to talk about prevalence, course, culture, five-factor model. Then we're going to go into the causes which I think will give us an idea as to why these things happen. And then I'm going to go back to describing lived experience research, um, people emailing me, and through that back and forth between describing it and talking about the causes and the schemas, it I think that's when you really understand the disorder. Because a lot of people describe personality disorders in terms of what you'll see in behavior. But I find that to be incredibly shallow in describing a personality disorder, you know, to describe borderline personality disorder, as people who will engage in self uh, cutting, you know, non suicidal self injury, as people who are prone to having chaotic relationships. It's like, okay, that's fine. But why? <laughs> you know, why? What person? What are? The, what's the issue that results in those behavior? And that's what I want to get to, but I, but I feel like I need to describe it first. So the description that I've I've broken it up into cognitive, emotional, and behavioral experiences. So, and they're kind of loose definitions, and these are my descriptors uh, as a compilation of a lot of the research. So cognitive experiences of people with avoidant personality disorder. They are preoccupied with being criticized and rejected. So they think a lot about, oh, crap, I'm going to get criticized. Oh, crap, I'm going to get rejected. They often assume others are being critical and rejecting of them when they're actually not. They often assume that others will see them as unlikable and that they will ostracize them. They feel like no matter what they do, they will be wrong in others' eyes. They might spend a lot of time reflecting on how they come across to others. Almost seemingly in an obsessional manner. All of us do this, right? All of us think like how do I dress? What's my hair look like? Do I smell bad? How's my how's my breath? When I say certain things, what does that sound like to other people? Am I being am I talking too much? Am I am I talking not not enough? All of us have had those thoughts run through our minds. But to the avoidant personality sort of person, they are going to be thinking about it A lot. And if you hear them talk about it, you'll be like, wow, you seem to really think about this a lot. They have negative narratives that other people are being highly judgmental. They might have distorted perceptions that others are being critical when they're not. They believe that nearly everything about them is being noticed and criticized their face, their clothes, their breath, their hair their facial expressions, the way they walk, the way they talk, body order, their voice, their ideas, their intelligence, the things they like. They're almost obsessed with social comparisons. They really believe that they are being very frequently, if not constantly noticed and criticized. So think about back to when I was in the third grade and I'm staring at my feet and I'm thinking everyone is staring at me. Everyone knows I'm staring at my feet. they're all thinking bad thoughts about me. It, it's that semi-delusional thought. Now, is it possible that in that moment when I was, when I was in the third grade that a lot of the kids n- saw me being quiet? Yeah. Is it also possible that no one noticed because they were too obsessed with themselves? Yeah. And if, if they did notice I was staring at my feet, did they know what was going on in my head that I was an, that I felt like I was an awkward, terrible human being. Probably not. They probably just thought, oh, he's probably just quiet or he's thinking or whatever. And but that's the that's the curse of the avoidant personality disorder person is the they're quite convinced. And there are there are childhood traumatic reasons for this that which we'll get into later. At the same time, people with avoidant personality disorder have deep Desires for friendship and companionship, just like most others. They long to be valued, loved, accepted, and included, and they might even fantasize about idealized friendships and relationships, idealized partnerships, you know, spousal relationships. Because think about it. Because people with avoidant personality disorder, they have it their whole life, even when they're children. And their whole life, they have felt ostracized and that nervousness obviously gets in the way of them developing relationships. And so they often throughout their entire life are lonely and are not getting their needs met in terms of being close to other people. So imagine by the time you're 40 how how much longing you're going to have for any kind of friendship. Now, I will say that many people with avoidant personality disorder do have friends. It's not like they don't, but usually not enough for them or their relationships are hard to be close. Anyway, I'll get into that in a second. People with avoidant personality disorder, they see themselves as unworthy, unlovable, as different from others, as strange and awkward. They have low self-esteem. They often view themselves with contempt, like there's something deeply wrong with themselves. They're often preoccupied with their shortcomings, like how they look. They often feel unworthy of their, their relationships, of any relationship. And just a side note on preoccupied with how they look. People with avoidant personality disorder will sometimes really focus on that. It'll look like body dysmorphia, and it is in a, in a sense that, but it's, its basis is avoidant personality disorder in that they, they might look at themselves in the mirror and, and just see like, well, I don't, I'm not that ugly, but I'm 100% sure that everyone thinks I'm ugly. Whereas with body dysmorphia, the person looks in the mirror, they're like, I am ugly. Now, the person with avoidant personality disorder might also do that. They might also look at themselves in the mirror and say, wow, I am ugly. But I'll get more into that later. People with avoidant personality disorder often have a negative outlook on life. They often expect the worst outcome. I'll get into more of that later. So it seems not related to shyness, but it's related to their traumas. They usually lack insight into their personality disorder, and this is key, this is what really differentiates it from social anxiety, is that they they really do not understand, even if you pointed out to them, that the way they see the world is distorted. If you told them, you know, I don't think people really care about you as much as you think they do. I don't think people really notice you I don't think even if they did notice that you were quote unquote awkward I don't think they care as much as you think that they do if you said that to someone in the early stages of treatment with avoidant personality disorder they'd be like no 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 you're stupid this is the way that the world is and for some people on the surface they might not mind that they have this point of view If you talk to them about this, they might be like, because of their defensive structure, they might just be like, yeah, it's fine, even though deep down they're very upset about being lonely. They might be like, no, no, I've accepted I'm lonely and I'm awkward and the world is a terrible place and, you know, that's just the way it is. No big deal. And you might be like, huh? So on the surface, they might seem to be totally convinced of this worldview and they might even seem to like it, but not always. Other people who don't share their perceptions will seem very weird to them. So when avoidant personality sort of people talk to others who don't seem to be shy, who, who seem to just move through the world with ease and freedom and confidence, they'll – the avoidant personality sort of person will look at them and just be like, what is – you're like from another planet. It'll just seem like a completely different way of living. And sometimes they'll look at those other people and think, you're, you're lying to yourself about how good the world is. Like there's something wrong with you. Because to the avoidant personality disorder and to any personality disorder, these notions, they feel very real to them. Just like with borderline people, people who suffer from borderline, it'll feel in the moment like they're being abandoned. Even though most people watching the, the interaction, you know, if it isn't actual abandonment, will say, no, you're not being abandoned. That person was just saying they were busy or something. But to the person with borderline personality disorder, given their traumas, they're 100% convinced that it is abandonment. And any argument to the contrary will just make them more upset. It's similar to the avoidant personality disorder person. Now, again, with borderline, you can recover from that, and a lot of you listening have, and I've helped people recover from that. And it's similar for avoidant personality disorder. when they, When people start out in treatment – Typically, they're totally convinced that these things are real, and as time goes on, they've learned to question that knee-jerk reaction. Okay, so those are all the cognitive experiences that I can think of in my categorization. The next category are emotional experiences, and I've already kind of dipped into that a little bit because there's some overlap here, but let's concentrate on the emotional experiences. So people with avoidant personality disorder – They often have chronic feelings of shame, chronic feelings of guilt, embarrassment, and distress. This is important. Shame, guilt, embarrassment, I think those are already clearly established in what I've been saying. But it's important to point out that they're often under a lot of distress. Imagine being in a constant state of shame, in a constant state of loneliness, you're going to have distress, you're going to go to bed feeling bad about yourself, you're going to maybe even be traumatized when you have to go to work and you have to interact with people. And it's also important to point out, and we'll get into more of this later when we talk about DSM, is that the distress associated with avoidant personality disorder, that these things are independent of depressive mood states, meaning that, well, I'll get into more of that later. But um, if, so people with avoidant personality disorder often have comorbid depressive disorders, you know, dysthymia or major depression, and those depressive states might come and go, but the inferiority and the distress remains, if that makes any sense. Anyway, I'll get more to that later. People with avoidant personality disorder also have intense fear of rejection and criticism and humiliation and negative judgment. They have an intense fear of making a fool of themselves in front of others even in front of their spouse or even their parents, people close to them. That's what makes it particular, right? They have intense fear of, they might have intense fear of blushing or stuttering, these kinds of things, or not knowing what to say in a conversation. That's a very common, that's like almost a a universal people with avoidant personality disorder will often talk about how in a conversation, they don't know what to say or they say too much. And, the reason is, well, I'll get to more of that later, but they might worry about laughing at the wrong joke. And they often worry about being seen as who they really are, which they believe to be a deeply flawed, nervous, weird person. They have extreme feelings of being inadequate, socially inept, awkward, and unlovable. They are often extremely sensitive to what others think about them to even slight criticism or minor signs of rejection. They often lack a sense of self, which I'm putting in the emotional category here. I've talked about this in other episodes, but just a refresher is a sense of self is defined as knowing who you are. You have a sense of your own identity. You know how you feel. You know what you want. You know your own goals in life. You, you know your own knee-jerk reactions, your own spontaneity, and your own you're very aware of how you are feeling in any particular moment. When you are traumatized or mistreated or neglected in ways as a child, you're denied the opportunity that you need to develop the sense of self. And people with avoidant personality disorder often lack that sense of self. Meaning that uh, – well, I'll get into that later – People with avoidant personality disorder can be secretly angry at people for being critical, either real or imagined at people for not reaching out more at people for overpowering them socially because they might give in to others often and then secretly feel angry about that. And some in this angry experience, might develop grandiose fantasies of getting payback on others and on society for overpowering them. However, they can feel comfortable socializing with others if the rules of engagement are clear, like in sports, or they are with people that they really trust, like an old friend or a spouse. And this really varies from person to person. For some people with avoidant personality disorder, There's no one they can identify that they feel really comfortable with, whereas others will say, no, no, my my husband or my wife, yeah, I I feel 90% comfortable with them, but everyone else I don't feel comfortable with. So it's not like constantly. There is a way for them to uh, get to a a place in a relationship where they, they feel safe. All right, so we've talked about cognitive experiences, emotional experiences. Let's go to behavioral experiences. When others, when around others, when people with avoidant personality are around others, they can appear to others to be shy, awkward, uncomfortable, non assertive, extremely accommodating, self sacrificial, not always. They can come across as being cold, maybe, being aloof, secretive, maybe, quiet invisible, and maybe even non-emotional or exhibiting shallow emotions, not because they have shallow emotions, but they're so restricted in their expressiveness to others that they might come across as being shallow in their emotions. Like when something's really happy, they'll kind of just chuckle and go, ha ha ha. And when they're really angry, they might be like, yes, that makes me angry because they're so nervous about expressing themselves and being criticized. They often will say that they need to be liked first before they will open up. This is another one of those hallmarks that you'll hear from people is they'll say, well, in order for me to open up, I will wait until the other person clearly indicates to me that they like me. And then I can relax, kind of. They will exhibit to others and to therapists in particular limited self-reflection, not because they are terrible people, but because of that lack of self. And so they don't really have a connection with themselves to reflect upon. And it, they might be so in distress as they are with you that it's hard for them to focus on anything other than their anxiety. They might have difficulty naming or describing their feelings. When asked how they feel, they might only be able to express that they are fine or stressed. These these kinds of words. They might be like, oh, I'm fine, even though there, there's much more there. Or they might just say like, oh, yeah, it's been kind of a stressful day. And when you ask them about their stressful day, they might have difficulty naming that, and they might not even know they have difficulty naming that, which further lends itself to this notion from them that they're different from other people because other people seem to describe all these other emotions and experiences, and they have a hard time doing that. Now, what they'll th- conclude is there's something weird about them, but what it, there's nothing weird about them. It's just that they weren't given a chance to connect with who they are and their emotional center and thus have a hard time noticing those emotions that are happening. In therapy, they might have difficulty describing their experience. They might have difficulty analyzing their own beliefs, meaning that if you ask them, well, you seem to believe that everyone is criticizing you. Let's think about that. They they might have difficulty being self-reflective on that, meaning that they'll say something like, well, I don't understand what you're talking about. That's uh, just how everyone is. Or as you explore it, they just seem to... Peter out in the conversation. They might have difficulty with self-disclosure in intimate relationships and in therapy, meaning that they have a hard time saying their own experience. They might want to tell you a story, but they might have a hard time doing it because of their fears of criticism. They might have difficulty recognizing cooperative behaviors in others. So because their model of the world is very uncooperative – the, their model of the world is criticism and judgment, and so when they actually see people being cooperative and being nice to each other, because it doesn't fit with their worldview, world they might have a difficult time recognizing it and thus having more hope in humanity. They might have difficulty reading other people's intentions or emotions. We call this metacognition or mentalization, which I'll get into later. They often will avoid a lot of things, obviously, because it's called avoidant uh, personality disorder. They will avoid becoming involved with others unless they're certain to be liked. They might avoid risks, even small risks, particularly if they are in front of other people. They might avoid jobs with interpersonal contact. This is a frequent hallmark of avoidant personality disorder is that their job will usually be like in tech or something where – They don't have to interact with other people very much. They might avoid close relationships for fear of being judged. They might avoid revealing feelings that may expose themselves, whether the feelings are positive or negative. So even positive feelings, they will not risk exposing. Because they fear, they're quite convinced that if they express their feelings, that they will be perceived as being weird or off in some way. For example, if they like a TV show, they will wait to see if the other person expresses positive feelings about the TV show before they themselves will review that too, just as as an example. They will avoid joining groups and new activities. They might avoid just contact, any sort of contact, texting with other people. They might avoid work activities like team-building exercises or group meetings. They might avoid emotional reactivity of any kind, even while in private. They might avoid self-exploration because they fear that they will become face-to-face with how flawed that they are. So this is an important thing to think about if you're a clinician out there, is that people with avoidant personality disorder are, they don't usually come to therapy because they know that Therapy involves a lot of self-exploration, and they're convinced usually that deep down they are extremely flawed and despicable and defective, which I'll get into more later. And that should really give you an idea of just how pathological this personality disorder is. That is it's not just shyness. It's not just sensitive to criticism. It's a deep-down belief That you are a terrible person, that you are defective, that there is something wrong with you. And by being in groups and exposing yourself to other people, you run the risk of that being noticed. Not everyone has that, but they usually do. They might rely on one person to provide them with all of their social needs, which can be difficult for that person at times because they know that, well, I'm I'm this person's only friend they might subjugate themselves to other people which can result in hidden rage you know from them towards other people so when they're in social situations they're so nervous and they're they're so desperate to be a part of a group or so desperate to get any kind of uh, approval that they just think well if i just if i just give in to the to these people i just do whatever they want me to do then maybe i can finally have a friendship Not every avoidant personality disorder person does this, but they often do. And this will come across as being quite awkward to the other people. They're just like, whoa, this person's being really accommodating to me, and I don't know if I like that. And then, of course, the person with avoidant personality disorder will develop a lot of anger because it's like no one ever does what I want to do, but it's possible that they're playing a part in that ignoring of their own wants. They often will seek isolation Because rejection is so painful that they would choose loneliness rather than take the risk of relationships. They often will engage in substance use to cope with these feelings and maybe to make them feel like they can socialize, like drinking alcohol. They might test others to see if they are non-critical. So they might throw things out there to see, is this person critical or not? Can I trust them? They might vigilantly appraise social situations, meaning that they're hypervigilant about what's going on socially right now. They might have irrational secretive behavior, like avoid revealing themselves to other people in a way that might seem irrational in their secretiveness. Like being secretive about how you feel, like let's say that you gave... A seminar and it didn't go well and right afterwards you're very secretive about the fact that it didn't go well and the other person's like why are you being so secretive about the fact that your seminar didn't go well for example Um, I'm not saying anything about who you think I'm talking about but anyway (laughs) Um, they might preemptively end relationships for fear of being abandoned meaning that because, you know, people with avoidant personality disorder will often pursue relationships because, like anyone else, they want to be in relationships with people. And as things get a little close and vulnerable, they might just end the relationship because it's like, oh, this is getting too close. I can't take it anymore. And surely this person is going to dump me eventually, so I might as well just end it now. They might wear clothes and or hats and or hairdos. That will hide themselves, particularly their face from other people. This is also – this is another hallmark, not always, of people with avoidant personality disorder is that they will dress in a way they'll, – they'll be very conscious about trying to dress in a way in which they can't really be seen by other people. So they might wear – a if it's a guy, he might wear a baseball hat that's pulled down really far and he might wear sunglasses all the time. He might have a beard to cover his face. He might have a very nondescript outfit that doesn't stick out at all because he's trying – he needs to go to the store and he just wants to blend in. He just, he, he, if, if he could wear Frodo's invisibility ring, he would, but he can't, so he has to hide himself in a – but he doesn't want to look like he's hiding himself too much because that – then that will stick out. And their efforts to hide themselves might elicit criticism, which confirms their beliefs that other people are critical. Meaning that if you're secretive or you don't open up or you never show up to parties or invites, then some people can be critical of that. They'll be like, how come you never show up? You're, you're, I, I, don't, I don't invite you anymore because you never show up. And then that can come across as critical and then that can confirm their notion that other people can't be trusted. And some other random characteristics that don't really fit into the categories is sometimes people with avoidant personality disorder will develop somatic symptoms, physical symptoms that may emerge from their chronic distress. And also, they usually do not have a large social support network, which makes sense. All right, so that's the long description of all the various descriptors of avoidant personality disorder that I compiled from the various research and literature. Now let's talk about some subtypes. So Theodore Milan, who is famous for personality disorder research decades ago, he looked into avoidant personality disorder. He actually introduced the term back in the day. And through his research, he identified four subtypes of avoidant personality disorder. The first one is conflicted avoidant. So this is an avoidant person who is conflicted. So these are my words. I'm putting Theodore Milan's words into my words. So people with, who are this type of, avoid, of avoidant personality, they're conflicted about their need for relationships. They, they want to be with other people, but they're also terrified. And they are convinced that others are critical of them, and they are angry about wanting to be with others. So they have avoidant personality disorder. And deep down, they, they want to be with others. But they're, just, they're angry about the fact that other people are so critical. Even though other people aren't that critical, they only see them as being critical. Or they, through projective identification, elicit or seduce others to be critical of them. So they're, they're angry. Then we have the hypersensitive avoidant personality. These are people who are in a constant state of tension and wariness. So they're very tense and suspicious, hypersensitive. They're like, oh, that's critical. Oh, that's, they're very noticing. The third is the phobic avoidant. This is someone who is in a constant state of phobic fear, panic fear. And they also fear discomfort. And they have very negative narratives of the future. So they're very pessimistic. So that the dominant feeling that they have in their avoidant personality disorder is the fear-anxiety sense. Then we have the self-deserving avoidant. These people are so afraid that they deny their own selfhood, and they're focused on others, and they lack self-worth, and they can often be suicidal. So these, so these people – oh, it's not self-deserving <laughs> – Self deserting, sorry, self deserting. So they they desert the self. They they have avoidant personality disorder, and in all of their development, their traumas, or their experience with others, they basically deny the self. They're just like the self has to go. I have to focus on other people, and I I'm worthless. I don't even want to look at myself. I other people. So you can imagine that being a very weird place to be. It's like. I'm going to deny the self. I need other people, but I'm terrified of criticism, that sort of thing. Alden and Capriol in 1993 proposed two other subtypes, which we'll talk about here. The cold avoidant. This is an avoidant personality disordered person who has the inability to experience positive emotions towards others. So through their avoidance of others and their distorted viewpoints of others, they have no positive emotions or positive emotion expressions towards others. They're very cold to other people. And then you have the exploitable avoidant, which is the sixth and final subtype. These people have the inability to express anger towards others. They're easily coerced. And they're at risk of exploitation. So for these avoidant people, they are so concerned with pleasing other people and getting them to not criticize them. And they they have such low self-worth that they have suppressed any anger and thus don't have the ability to notice when their rights are being infringed upon. And that makes them very easily coerced and easily exp- exploited by other people. Okay, so we've talked about the experiences in detail, all the various cognitive, emotional, behavioral experiences. We've talked about the subtypes. Now let's talk about the presentation. What do they come across to other people like? You know, What do they seem like to others? Well, the first thing I want to point out is they don't seem like a weird hermit. They, in your mind, you might be imagining someone who is just, you know, like uh, this weird hermit in a cave with a long beard and they never come out. That's not what they come across like. Just like people with borderline personality disorder aren't crazy, dramatic people screaming all the time. To the casual observer, there would be no way to tell if someone had avoidant personality disorder or not unless they told you. People with avoidant personality, they have jobs. They have marriages. They have partners. They have friends. They have hobbies, etc. But the difference is is they're secretly extremely anxious about interacting with you, but you might not know that. Okay, so let's talk about some of the signs. And not everyone is going to have these signs, by the way. They might come across as being shy. They might be quiet. They might be withdrawn. They might come across as invisible. Like when you're at a dinner party, you're like, oh, that person has been sitting there the whole time. I didn't... They didn't talk much. I didn't even notice them. They might come across as being awkward, like they're struggling with social skills. They might avoid socializing. When you do communicate with them, they might have very short communications. Like you ask, hey, how was your weekend? They're like, oh, it was fine. And that's all they say. They might appear anxious. They might appear suspicious. They might seem convinced that others are criticizing them when it seems unlikely that they are. They might appear depressed because they often are for obvious reasons. They might avoid physical contact with you or limit it. Like they might not want to hug you. And if they do hug, they they might only kind of weakly hug you or shake your hand in a very weak manner because they're, they're just trying to avoid and They're anxious, so they might be really concentrating on that. And they might not want to come across as hugging you too hard or grasping your hand too hard. It's too risky to do that. It's easier to just try to get, get it over with as soon as possible. They might dress in a way that hides their face and body. They might stay home a lot. That's kind of a hallmark of people with avoidant personality disorder is they're home a lot. They probably won't socialize as much, if at all. And they probably will have a job and a lifestyle that doesn't involve working closely with others. But remember, not all of them are awkward. Not all of them are quiet and shy. Some have friends. Some can be charming and funny. Some might have been popular in school. And many of them have spouses and kids. So remember that it's just like any other human (laughs) – Job, spouse, kids, uh, interesting stories to tell, they might not – it might not be noticeable is the thing. Now, it might be very noticeable, but it might not be. It's mainly an internal hidden condition is the point. In the same way that people with borderline, you're not going to notice them. You're not going to be like, oh, I work with a borderline person. No. Unless you really knew what was going on for them internally, you wouldn't really know. And this is why I always say is I can't diagnose from afar because it's unethical. But also, particularly when it comes to personality disorders, I have to hear from the person their inner experience to really know what is going on. If I saw someone exhibiting avoidant personality disorder behavior, I wouldn't say, oh, that person has avoidant personality disorder. I would have to say, okay, what's going on for you internally? And I would start hearing those notions and perceptions that other people are critical and that they are worthless and the frequency of how they're thinking about criticism and about ridicule and their you know all the other things that come with it. Anyway. If you're close to them, meaning that they're a family member or something like that, you might see the following. So these are things that wouldn't be just someone at work, but someone that you're really close to. So maybe someone that you live with. And again, some of you out there might be thinking about someone in your life that might have this. So these are things to look for. You can't diagnose from afar, but these are the signs that you might see. Again, they stay home all the time or as often as they can. They stay home and then they're in, and they're in their room. They, they don't come out because it's risky to do that you risk being judged, you risk being criticized, you risk making a fool out of yourself. And if you do leave your room, if you do leave your house, you try to be as invisible as possible. These people tend not to have any friends or very limited friends or only friends online because online friends in a particular way depending can be very uh, unrisky, you know. There's not a lot of risk to having a particular style of online friends. Now, you can have online friends that involve a lot of risk and a lot of intimacy. but Because, again, if, if, you're, if you have a personality disorder, you have a deep longing for friendship. And if you're stuck at home all the time and you can't even take a risk because you're so terrified of even just going out to a party or a bar or meeting up with a friend, then you're stuck at home. Well, what's your vector for friendship? Well, it's on the internet. And so, you're going to you're going to ease into friendship on the internet first. You're going to see, you're going to test the waters because at any time you could just be like you could just ghost someone on the internet pretty easily. Anyway. They might be very afraid of taking risks or doing anything new, even eating different kinds of food because new Equate[s] to risk, which equates to humiliation. So they might be very focused on routines. So people with avoidant personality disorder will often be mistaken for people with autism spectrum, for a lot of these reasons, by the way. So you know they might avoid eye, eye contact, for example, not because of an autistic um, origin of that issue, but because. To look at someone, to look someone in the eye, is terrifying for some, not all, but it can be very scary because, oh God, that's the person who is thinking negative thoughts about me. They're going to notice me. Um, if I don't look at them, maybe they'll just ignore me and go away. Um, you know those kinds of thoughts. If they're a young adult, they will probably still be living with their parents. Not that that's a bad thing, but that's often the case they might avoid getting a job and if they have a job they'll get a job that doesn't involve socializing much and or doesn't involve very many risks like like IT jobs or working from home they might move from job to job because as the job progresses relationships might progress and they might quit because they don't want to get into you know more deep relationships with anyone even at work they might have difficulty doing things on their own they might need other people to to do it with them they might be very pessimistic about the future they might appear to be depressed and or anxious low self-esteem and they might be good at hiding their feelings from others so they might seem flat and aloof when in fact deep down they have a lot of feelings They might avoid conflict with you, and they might be very accommodating to you, but occasionally they get angry, very angry, perhaps. They probably won't go to parties, and if they do go, they will be a wallflower. They might prefer going to stores during off hours on the off chance that they might have to interact with someone at the store. They'll avoid peak hours. They might consider you to be their best friend, even though you perceive their relationship, to be not that close or intimate, because you might be their only friend. If if you're a spouse of someone with avoidant personality disorder, you might always feel at least slightly rejected by them. Even when you complain about it, your spouse might not have any idea what you're talking about. So um, although some spouses with avoidant personality disorder might have insight into what they're doing and they might have insight into how they're holding back but if you if your spouse has avoidant personality disorder it'll feel rejecting they, they'll feel cold they'll feel like they're keeping you out it'll feel like they treat you like you're a stranger on the street because when you all of us have this experience i'll just i'll talk about myself I'll be at work, and I'll try to be on my best behavior, try not to make a fool out of myself, and then I do something where I do make a fool out of myself. (laughs) But I don't say it to people at work, because maybe I don't trust people at work. So then I go home, and I tell my wife, I made a fool out of myself at work. And I tell her about it. And then she's like, oh, you know, uh, that's interesting. (laughs) And then, but to someone with avoidant personality disorder, Their spouse is just as much of a threat sometimes as people at work. So he might come home from work and not talk about anything. And so to the spouse, it might be like, how come this person never says anything? They might might seem like a robot to people on the outside or cold or aloof or stuck up or even narcissistic, arrogant, like they don't care about other people's feelings. But that's not what's happening for them internally. But overall, again, people with avoidant personality disorder will seem shy. They might even talk about it and you might hear their perspective. Like if, if you say something like, hey, um, how about you get a job? They might be like, oh, no, 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 I, that's, that's not going to work because – and they might have a lot of excuses. Because they're afraid of even revealing to you that they're afraid of being awkward. So they might have a lot of excuses as to not get a job. Or if you're a friend of theirs, they might talk, you know, about oh yeah, I was walking down the street the other day and this these group of teenagers were just staring at me the whole time and laughing at the way I was dressed and it just it was like insane how like critical they were. And you might be thinking, huh? Well, that doesn't seem very likely. I suppose it could have happened. But the way they, they're telling the story, it sounds like it's – like they're being paranoid or something. So those are kind of the hallmarks of people. Also, Other hallmarks, again, staying at home, avoiding social contact, never, ever willingly going to a party, never, ever willingly going to a large group social event um, or very you know reluctant to do those kinds of things. All right. So – Let's talk about prevalence. As I said before, avoidant personality disorder is possibly the most prevalent personality disorder. Lifetime prevalence could be anywhere between 2 and 7%, meaning that between 2 and 7% of any population uh, at some point in their life will suffer from avoidant personality disorder. And as we know, it tends to be a lifelong condition or at least um for the first number of decades of one's life. And so, uh, that's a lot of people, right? To anywhere from two percent to seven percent. It's probably more around two percent, given the consensus and the data, but it could be as high as seven percent. It's a lot of people. So that's either one in fifty or one in what's one seven? <laughs> uh, one in fifteen? Uh, is that what that is? And it's also equal among genders. So a lot of you in your minds right now might be thinking primarily of boys and men. I don't know. But the stereotype of the shut-in is a guy who plays video games all the time, and he works in tech, and he's nerdy and awkward. But uh, research has shown that just as many women suffer from avoidant personality disorder. So think about that. in your. So as, as we talk about this, try to imagine that is, And maybe if you do have that stereotype, really try to uh, Maybe only imagine women to offset that stereotype. Women can stay home all the time too. Women can work in tech or have jobs where they don't have to work with other people. Women can be awkward and socially paranoid, if you will. All right, let's talk about the course, the course of the disorder through the lifespan. So as I said before, it starts in childhood and persists into teenage years and adulthood. But as with all personality disorders, avoidant personality disorder is usually not diagnosed in children and teens. We usually diagnose people that are 18 and up with personality disorders. However, research has found that symptoms of avoidant personality disorder have been detected in children as young as two years old. So children who are shy, isolated, they avoid strangers, and they might avoid new things. You know, many children are shy, right? Many children go through a shy phase, or many children just are shy. But those who develop avoidant personality disorder will continue to become even more shy as they age. And there's a difference between avoidant personality disordered children and just shy kids in that avoidant personality disordered people have a constellation of issues that relate to Deep shame, there's something wrong with me, other people are inherently dangerous and critical, that sort of thing. Whereas shy kids might just be afraid of the in-the-moment humiliation. Whereas avoidant personality disorder people, even when they're – so to a shy kid, you know, say you're at a picnic and you're like, okay, we're all going to play this game and your nine-year-old daughter – is she doesn't want to play it. She's like, no, 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 I don't want to do it. I don't want to. That's a shy kind of spike in shyness, if you will, a a moment of anxiety. To the avoidant personality disorder person, it's all the time, even when they're not in that moment, which they would exhibit in that moment as well. But even when they're home, just sitting by themselves, they're thinking about humiliation and criticalness and making a fool out of themselves. Also, like most personality disorders, uh, avoidant personality disorder typically will decrease in intensity with age even without treatment, with many people experiencing few of the most extreme symptoms by the time they're in their 40s and 50s. So it's weird. Personality disorders, even antisocial, even psychopathy, will tend to decrease as people age, again, 40s, 50s, 60s. And it's true about avoidant personality disorder. There's a lot of speculation as to why that would be. The one that I like is that people tend to try to heal themselves over time and succeed a lot of people. And so even without treatment – they will tend to heal and recover on some level. So someone with avoidant personality disorder – so I'll just take me for example. I don't have avoidant personality disorder, but I have suffered from social anxiety and shyness in my – I'm almost 50, and I almost have no shyness anymore. <laughs> but I, boy, did I have it when I was – even just 10 years ago, I, I noticed there are differences in me just in 10 years ago. And so – I, over time, have combated my shyness by saying everything's going to be okay, by exposing myself, which we'll get into later, exposure therapy. A lot of people will, either through the force of nature, just like you have to interact with other people, and so that exposure will help habituate you to socializing. But also some people just do it on purpose. Anyway, so that's the course. Now let's talk a little bit about culture here. We have to consider how our culture views people who are socially anxious and the effect on how we deem something as being pathological or not. In our culture, in mainstream America, we privilege extroversion. We privilege social skills. It's possible that some people are made to feel bad about themselves because they're just not extroverted and they might also be shunned by society. So – It's possible that because of our culture and oppression of certain kinds of people, they might appear to have avoidant personality disorder or even develop it because of the way our culture traumatizes people. But it's important to note that those with uh, avoidant personality disorder would agree once they gain some insight into their condition that it's more than just introversion, if you will. But it is important that we think as we go through the rest of this discussion that our cultural understandings and the way we interpret other people and the things that we tend to privilege is an important part of this equation, that we privilege extroverts. We privilege people who are smooth social talkers. We privilege good-looking people. We privilege people who aren't awkward. And so – what does that do to people? And is it okay for someone to stay home all the time? Is it okay for someone to be a hermit? Is it okay for someone to avoid parties and that kind of thing? We, we, we have to integrate that in. Having said that, like I said, if you talk to people who suffer from avoidant personality disorder, they're going to say this is way beyond stigma. <laughs> like even if you took away all the stigma in the world, I would still be suffering. But anyway. Okay. So let's take a brief excursion into the five-factor model. It's one of the only personality typologies, if you will, that is supported by science in that it has five factors. We have neuroticism, extroversion, openness to experience, agreeableness, and conscientiousness. And there are 30 facets, six to each domain. So if, uh, if you're familiar with the research, then you know. But anyway. The point here is, is that what, uh, how does the five-factor model relate to avoidant personality disorder? Well, people with avoidant personality disorder are higher in neuroticism, which makes sense because neuroticism has the following facets. It has anxiety, angry, anger, depression, self-consciousness, impulsiveness, and vulnerability. But for those with avoidant personality disorder, they're, they're particularly high in anxiety, which makes sense depression because of the crushingness of the disorder. They're higher in self-consciousness, which of course makes sense. And they're higher in vulnerability, meaning they feel vulnerable. But they're not particularly high in the anger hostility facet or the impulsiveness facet. And the other part of the five-factor model that relates to avoidant personality is that they're lower in extroversion, which of course makes sense. And there are six facets to extroversion version: warmth, gregariousness, assertiveness, activity, excitement-seeking, and positive emotions. And the ones that relate particularly to avoidant personality disorder is gregariousness, assertiveness, and excitement-seeking. People with avoidant personality disorder are lower with gregariousness, assertiveness, and excitement excitement-seeking. but they can be warm and they can have positive emotions. And it's also so higher in neuroticism, particularly anger, depression, or sorry, anxiety, depression, self-consciousness, vulnerability, lower in extroversion, particularly gregariousness, assertiveness, and excitement seeking. But the other three factors in the five-factor model, there doesn't seem to be any correlation or difference between those with avoidant personality disorder and those who don't have it. So agreeableness, for example, avoidant personality sorted people can be just as agreeable as the average person. They can also be just as conscientious as the average person, and they can be just as open to new experience as the average person, which is interesting, right, that th- even though they avoid risks, they're still basically open to new experience. So maybe they're open to experiences that don't involve a lot of risks is the point. Okay, so let's talk about the causes. This is the meat of this whole talk here. Why does avoidant personality disorder happen? The short answer is we don't know the precise cause of most mental conditions. And so we just have to acknowledge we're in the beginnings of our science regarding brain and personality. But as with most personality disorders, the consensus among the experts, including myself, is that it's a combination – of genetics and epigenet- epigenetics which are uh, causal to temperament as we call it as we call it and early childhood experiences so temperament and early childhood experiences so let's talk about temperament very quickly anyone who has raised more than one child or hung out with more than one child even you know at the age of 12 months 18 months you know that every infant is different, even twins. And research suggests that there is some heritability of avoidant personality disorder, meaning that if you have someone in your – either your parents or your aunts and uncles or your grandparents, even if you're adopted into another family, then you are at higher risk of having avoidant personality disorder. So temperament seems to play a role. Now, what actual elements of the temperament could be at play? Well, some people seem to be born with a higher risk of anxiety. Some people seem to be born who are more sensitive than other people to the outside world. Some people are more sensitive to other humans. And some kids don't seem to be sensitive to other humans at all. And so there seem to be these different dials, if you will. Some of them are turned up to 10, some of them are turned to five, some are turned to one. And anxiety, propensity, focus on others' propensity, sensitivity to the outside world, emotionality, these kinds of things, there's varying levels. So there's there's a bell curve, obviously. But People who have their dials turned up in some areas and turned down, it's the ability to the the mellowness of a child, you know if you've ever hung out with more than one kid or especially you've hung out with tens of kids and I particularly saw this when I was young myself because my mom had a daycare in our house and there were always and we didn't live in a big house and the kids would actually sleep in my bed so and the whole daycare my mom had a daycare, did I say that? My mom had a daycare in our house and The kids were usually about two, three, four years old. She didn't really have kids that were older very often, and they were so different, even at the age of two. You know, some were mellow, some weren't. Some were very, would cry a lot. Some would. Now, of course, their childhood experiences play a role, but it also seemed clear that some kids just have different temperaments. Anyway, so we have to acknowledge that there's no way to really measure that, and of course. When we talk about people who have avoidant personality disorder, there's no way for us to know how much temperament played a role. We just don't have the technology to measure that question at this point. But it seems highly likely. Let's just put it that way. Okay, so now let's talk about childhood experiences. This is where most of our cause comes from. And it won't be surprising to you that research suggests – That childhood mistreatment increases the risk of developing avoidant personality disorder. It's true about any personality disorder. And really, most of the issues labeled in the DSM, depression, anxiety, PTSD, all often have roots in childhood mistreatment. Things like lack of affection, lack of encouragement, rejection, physical abuse, sexual abuse, emotional neglect emotional abuse, physical neglect, childhood illness, humiliation, substance abuse in the parents, divorce, that was difficult, even moving a lot as a child, and of course bullying at school, which would be very intuitive as to one developing shyness and worry about criticism from others. And remember that the mistreatment, it doesn't have to be severe or noticeable. Some of you out there suffering from personality disorders, will be able to point back to points in your life that were obviously abusive and, and horrible. You were sexually abused from the age of three to seven. Your mother beat you regularly throughout your childhood. Your parents were extremely violent. You were given up for adoption or put into foster care because your parents were using substances. These are obvious. This, these are just no doubt the mistreatment that a child goes through under those circumstances. But I'll get emails from people or comments from students as I'm asking them to explore their own genesis of their own personality disorders. They'll say things like, well, I don't know, my, my childhood was pretty good. And it's possible that personality disorders can emerge from you know pretty low mistreatment environments. But remember that Mistreatment, it doesn't have to be severe or noticeable. You could have loving parents who emotionally neglect you. You could have a great childhood that has problems that are significant but below the radar. You could also have swept things under the rug. You might, upon further investigation, learn, wait, I think my whole family swept things under the rug. And my initial narrative of my family was that everything was fine, but when I start actually looking at it, I'm thinking, wait a second, that probably wasn't fine. That happens a lot, particularly to avoidant disengaged families. Well, really any style of family I could think of. The point is, is that just because you're initial in their narrative, the initial narrative of your childhood doesn't include abuse and, mis- and mistreatment, doesn't mean you weren't actually mistreated. For example, like I said, the first one example I gave is you could have very loving parents who were emotionally neglectful. So you, your parents could have said they loved you a lot. They could have been very calm and very stable. They didn't, they never drank, they never used drugs. They never got divorced. They went to work every day. They came home at the same time every day. They were nice. They were pleasant. But when it came time to actually attuning to your feelings at the age of one, two, three, four years old, they just weren't that noticing of you. They didn't uh, have that on their radar. When you approached them, they were nice, but they weren't that attentive to you. That can create a massive emotional neglect for the child. So we don't want to just look at the obvious mistreatments. We want to look at the subtle ones as well. And also remember that it depends on how the child interprets their environment, their parents, their caregivers. So you could have a parent who thinks from... So this is relevant maybe to multiple kids. So one kid given their temperament, could interpret their parents as loving, attuned, safe, wonderful. The next kid that comes along because of their temperament could interpret their parents as being cold, neglecting, absent, even though the parents are treating both kids exactly the same, which is impossible, but you know what I'm saying. So it has to do with temperament. It also has to do with cognitive choices that children make. We often look at kids as just sponges that absorb everything that happens around them. And that's not true. By the time they're even just six months old, they're making choices about the way they see the world in the same way that you make choices as adults about how you see the world. When the next tweet of Donald Trump comes around, you have a choice. You can see it in a myriad of different ways, but you choose. You will choose to see it in a small set, if not one way. And that's a choice that you make. It's influenced by culture and about your ideas of things, but it is a choice. You could choose differently. A six-month-old, a 12-month-old also engages in those choices. They have agency. They're not just blobs of involuntary absorption. They make choices. And so that's another factor that could play into a perception of mistreatment when it wasn't overtly mistreating Also remember that it's dependent on how the child and parents fit together. So good parents might not fit well with the child. So let's say you have a ch- you have parents who are very extroverted and they have a they are they birth a child who is very introverted. And the extroverted parents are loving and caring and attuned as best they can. But through their interactions with their child, they miss the mark a lot and they misinterpret each other. The introverted child misinterprets the extroverted parents. The extroverted parents misinterpret the introverted child. And that leads to a feeling of mistreatment and a, and a feeling of abandonment even though the parents are great, loving people. So it, it has to do with – so think about subtlety – Think about the choices a child makes and think about the systemic way in which parents and children fit together. Having said all that, this is what we say about all personality disorders and, again, many of the labels in the DSM, that mistreatment and fit and choices and all those things lead to a lot of the ills that we see talked about in the DSM and otherwise. So the key is, is, you know, what is it about these different experiences and mistreatment that will differentiate people into avoidant personality disorder, borderline personality disorder, schizoid personality disorder, narcissistic personality disorder, social anxiety, PTSD, complex PTSD, You know, and the list goes on and on? What is it about particular kinds of mistreatment and particular experiences and, and perception of mistreatment as a child? that will differentiate the child into different conditions. So it depends on the type of mistreatment, and it also depends on the style of coping that the child will engage in, which is also dependent on what coping styles the child knows about early in life. We're talking like 18 months, which we'll get into more later. All right, so when we look at specific mistreatment, let's look first at parenting style. What kinds of parenting styles or bad parenting styles, bad parenting characteristics, are associated, according to the research, to avoidant personality disorder? Well, there are four. Number one is a general lack of attunement. So attunement means you notice your child's emotions and you attend to those emotions appropriately. Your child is uh, in a bad mood because they're grumpy because they need a nap and you say, "Oh, I notice you're grumpy and you're in a bad mood cuz you need a nap." <laughs> Instead of ignoring them, not even noticing, or getting angry at them. Stop being in a bad mood, you know, you know, shut it, shut up, that kind of thing. So attunement is noticing, being a safe place of noticing and then pointing out to the child what they're experiencing. Children do not emerge from the womb aware of their emotional states. In fact, they emerge from the womb in a completely undifferentiated state. They, when they are in an emotion, they think that is the world. The world is terrible right now. And they don't have the ability to reflect on their mood. And so when you are in an experience where your parents are not attuning to you enough through those early years— then you lack a self, meaning you lack a sense of self. You lack awareness of your emotions, and you're kind of like a two-year-old experiencing the world in an undifferentiated manner. You don't have the ability – you know, all of us uh, who have been attuned to well enough will wake up in the morning and be like, you know what, I'm, I'm in a bad mood today. And I need to watch what I say, and I need to take it easy on myself, and I need to, you know, or I'm feeling burnt out right now. You know, you'll notice things about yourself. Well, if you're not attuned to, then you never learned that. That's not something that's innate. And so if you don't have a connection with yourself, then you also lack emotional awareness. You lack emotional expression that's in a differentiated, mature way later in life. And this can be a factor that can lead to avoidant personality. But that's a factor that leads to all the personality disorders, by the way. But let's look at things that are more specific parenting styles that are related to avoidant personality disorder. The next three are. So number two is overprotective, anxious, and enmeshed parenting. Overprotective parents, and we're talking early in life, right? So Johnny wants to play on the the playground, but the parents are – Like, oh, no, 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 the world is a scary place. You're going to get hurt. You need me. You can't do things on your own. You can't manage things on your own. The world is threatening. Risks are threatening. And there's a low tolerance for emotional expression in these kinds of overprotective, anxious, enmeshed situations. And so the messages that are given to the kid that are very, very strong are the world is terrifying. Other people are terrifying. And the parent might actually believe this. The parent might also be avoidant personality or social anxiety or something. So the world is scary. People are scary. Risks are scary. I am your only hope, and you are not capable. That's an, a very important piece that a lot of parents overlook. Not everyone, but a lot of, a lot of anxious parents will overlook Because – and they're micro situations. So you have a situation where the 7-year-old wants to do something. Or even let's say the school is asking the 7-year-old to do something. Let's say the school is asking the 7-year-old to go on a field trip or something to the aquarium, something like that, or to be in a play. The school – this is probably better. The school is saying, Johnny would be great if he could play Santa Claus in our Christmas play at school. Now, of course, we wouldn't have Santa Claus in a Christmas play at public school. Let's say he's going to play Darth Vader. He's going to play Luke Skywalker in a play at school. And to the anxious parent, she's going to be worried about her her son failing and having a bad time. You know, any parent would be, oh, God, what if he fails on stage and this is a traumatic moment for him? Every parent will have that little bit of anxiety. Well, if you are if you have a policy of overprotection, then you're going to call the school and you're going to be like, no, no, no. I don't think that's a good idea. <clears throat> but first, the kid is going to tell you, mommy, mommy, they want me to play Luke Skywalker at school. And I don't know. I think I'm going to be terrible. And the mom's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. This is bad. Calls the school. Cancels it. Okay. A non-overprotective parent. I'm not saying this is universal. I'm just giving a possible example. Johnny comes home, says, I'm going to play Luke Skywalker at school, and I don't know if I can do it. And the non-overprotective parent feels the anxiety but also re- recognizes this would be a great opportunity for him to learn how to overcome his anxiety. He's at that age now. Johnny, you know, if you're up for it, why don't you give it a try? And, you know, if things go badly, that's okay. You know, it's, it's, it's okay. It's a small play. It's not a big deal. And I believe in you, and let's practice your lines together, and this is going to be fun. It's fun to be on stage and do things. Let's, let's, let's work on this together, okay? So now I'm not saying you should always do one way or the other, but I hope that it differentiates between the anxious, non-overprotective parent and the anxious, overprotective parent. And what this does is it gives a very clear message to, the, to Johnny that he's not capable That the world is scary, that he needs mom to protect him from the world, that judgment and humiliation are inevitable, that he's not good enough to give it a try. And then when he's in the audience watching his classmates on stage, he's like, yeah, everyone is up there. And if I was up there, I'd be failing because I'm a terrible person. This has to be matched up with general mistreatment starting at the age of two and one, general lack of attunement, that kind of thing. And there can be different degrees to this. A parent could be fairly attuned, but overprotective. The, the mistreatment could be just kind of. Maybe one of the parents were mistreating of the child. The other parent wasn't. It's not like these are – because some of you might be thinking about your own children or even your own childhoods and being like, well, you know, it wasn't this monolithic example. You know, the mistreatment was kind of over here. It all depends on how it all comes together in the personality, right? Anyway. So overprotective parenting – through research, has been demonstrated to be associated with avoidant personality, which makes a lot of sense. Social isolation is our third parenting style that is associated with avoidant personality. So these are people, parents, families who are socially isolated. So people with avoidant personality disorder have been found. Bruch and Heinberg 1994, found that they are more likely to report that their families were socially isolated. And they and there weren't many positive social interactions with people outside of the family. So this, of course, makes sense. That if your family didn't take those risks, didn't expose their children to social situations very much, then the kids are going to feel more awkward, more uh, unable socially, more inexperienced socially, so that it might compound this avoidant personality disorder issue. And the fourth kind of parenting is psychological control. So controlling parents, and not only just controlling behaviorally, but also controlling psychologically. Not always, but sometimes. Again, lack of attunement, lack of letting a child explore the world and realize it's safe to venture off on their own, and also abusive by its nature. So this examples of this kind of parenting would be The child is upset that they don't get another cookie and the parent will become very angry and hostile and scary to the child when they express themselves in this way. So this gives a lot of messages to a child that their feelings aren't worthy, that when they reveal themselves in a spontaneous way that there's something wrong with them, that they shouldn't try to take risks or else they're going to get their hand slapped emotionally, that they're not worth it to be heard. There's a lot of horrible messages there. So in conclusion about parenting styles, I would say that there has to be some level of distress in the child growing up for one reason or another. Either lack of attunement, abuse, divorce, chaos, drug abuse, something going on where there's distress that makes it so the child doesn't feels like the world is a scary place. And then In all likelihood, you either had an overprotective parent or a controlling parent or both. So those are the kinds of things. Now, let's say that you just had some chaos and a kind of overprotective parent that was kind of socially isolated. Then your kid could kind of have avoidant personality disorder. Or if there was a lot of control... But some allowance for the kid to take risks, maybe there were other issues related to the abuse of control, but not a lot of avoidant personality disorder traits. And this is, I just want to continually say this, is that everyone with a disorder is different with a different history. Everyone with the disorder has a different personality. So just keep that in mind, because some people might be thinking, well, I don't know, it doesn't really fit this. Personality disorders are very strange in that. Uh, It's hard. These are constructs that we're talking about. They're not actual things. These are ways of describing people, and we we try to lump people together into this one category because they seem to share a lot of the same qualities anyway. Okay, so we've talked about mistreatment in child. We've talked about parenting style. Let's talk about attachment. You know I'm all about attachment. Research by Ekenes et al. in 2016 found that those with avoidant personality disorder are more likely to have an insecure attachment style, particularly disorganized. So this makes a lot of sense, right? That if you have insecure attachment style, it would make – if you have avoidant personality disorder, you probably don't have secure attachment. But you might, which is interesting to think about, right? But this brings up correlation versus causation, because mistreatment in childhood could cause both avoidant personality disorder and insecure attachment particularly disorganized but insecure attachment has been speculated i think quite uh, convincingly to be a causal factor meaning that when you develop as a child in you know you're you're a kid and you're 18 months old you're 24 months old and You're made to feel like you don't really matter or that you can't really depend on other people emotionally for whatever reason. So you start developing these working models of self and other, that other people are bad and maybe I'm bad too. So if you believed that you are bad because of the way you're being treated and other people are bad because they're treating you badly, then this is the hallmark of what we call disorganized attachment. If you have a working model of self that is good and that a working model of others that are bad, then we call that avoidant attachment. If you have a working model of others that is good and a working model of self that is bad, then that tends to be more in the realm of preoccupied attachment. But when you have a working model of self and other that is both bad, you have nowhere to turn, and we call this disorganized attachment, fearful attachment, in that you're just like stuck, you don't know, you don't know where to turn. For the avoidant person, they avoid an avoidant attachment person, not avoidant personality, to the avoidant attachment person, they will, and maybe I should have said this a long time ago, (laughs) avoidant attachment style is completely different from avoidant personality disorder. Man, I probably should have said that up front. (laughs) How many of you have been going, wait, is this the same as avoidant attachment? Oh, boy. (laughs) Anyway, um, so the avoidant attachment person will rely on the self. They feel like they can rely on the self because they have a good model of themselves. For the preoccupied person, they will pursue other people. They have a way of coping. They're like, well, if I just glom on and cling to other people because they're good and I'm bad, then I have that security to fall back on. To the disorganized person, they have nowhere to go. They can't go to the self. They can't go to others. They're stuck. They're just like frozen in fear. And that makes a lot of sense to avoidant personality disorder, right? Because avoidant personality disorder people, they deep down believe that they are bad and criticizable that they are awkward and weird and wrong. And they also believe that other people are to be feared, that they will criticize you. They are the enemy. So it particularly, and researchers found this, that disorganized attachment is is the most common or the most correlated with uh, avoidant personality disorder. All right, let's also talk about mentalization. I talked about this earlier. It should be briefly mentioned because a lot of research looks into this in terms of avoidant personality disorder. So people with personality disorders in general have lower levels of mentalization. Mentalization is a very important top, topic that I've talked about occasionally, and it has very much to do with development and attachment. In a nutshell, it's the ability to understand one's own mind and the minds of others. There's actually a developmental stage. I can't remember the exact age that kids will go through this. I think it's somewhere around age three or something, where children will begin to know that Their mind is not other people's mind. And the way you test this is this theory of mind, what they call it, mentalization or metacognition. This ability is tested through kids by saying um, in the lab what you'll do is you'll put a ball into a box. And so there'll be a, a researcher and then a random adult will be in the room. And so you put the ball in the box and the kid sees that everyone sees the ball goes in the box. And then the researcher asks the random person to leave the room. Say it's their parent. Says, you know, okay, mommy, leave the room. Mommy leaves the room. And then while mommy is outside the room, the researcher takes the ball out of the box and puts it somewhere else and closes the box. And then mommy comes back in. And then you ask little Johnny, Johnny, where do you think – Um, Mommy should look for the ball. You know, where is Mommy going to look for the ball? Well, if you haven't reached that point of mentalization, that point of theory of mind where you develop that, the child will say, well, Mommy's going to look in the drawer because the ball is in the drawer. So a little bit older, as they develop this ability to mentalize, the child will say, well, Mommy's going to look in the box because that's the last place Mommy saw the ball, but I know the ball's in the drawer. But mommy's going to look in the box because mommy hasn't seen us put it in the drawer. Okay, hope that makes sense. So this is mentalization, theory of mind, uh, metacognition, and for those who go through mistreatment, they have lower levels of mentalization because they don't. They have lower levels of even knowing themselves. So if you can't know your own mind, it's hard to know other people's mind, and also another way of thinking about it is that when you're mistreated at an early age, you kind of have arrested development in a certain part of your personality. So people who are mistreated, they might have very black and white thinking, which is a childish way of thinking. You might lack mentalization, which is a childish way of thinking. You might think your emotions are the emotions and your point of view is the point of view, which is a childish way of looking at things. And so uh, you might have difficulty regulating your own emotions, which is a childish thing, not childish in the derogatory sense, but in the developmental sense. And so people with personality disorders, they generally have lower uh, sense of self and also lower levels of mentalization, meaning they they don't really understand their, they can't reflect on their own mind. They, they don't know what they want. They don't know their own emotions. And thus, they also don't know the emotions of others. So this makes a lot of sense to avoid a personality disorder, right? Because In the absence of being able to accurately predict what is in other people's minds, you're going to insert things in there, like over-criticism and over-judgment. Those people are surely criticizing me because they have a hard time imagining what it's like to be another person. For most of us, to get over our shyness, we just think about ourselves. We think, well, who was the last awkward person that I came across? Oh, it was that person I met at school well, what did I think of that awkward person? Well, I don't know. Yeah, I, I noticed that they were awkward, but I, you know, I didn't think much of it. I just thought, well, you know, people are awkward sometimes. I'm sure they're a nice person. And then you mentalize that into other people's brains and you go, hmm, the next time I'm awkward, I bet you other people are thinking about me the way that I think about awkward people, which is to be not very critical and not very judgmental. In fact, I don't even think I care or even notice when people are being awkward, really. So... You need that ability to mind-read, essentially, other people, which we develop. It's one of our hallmarks as a human being and many other mammals. You know, you might notice your dog knows what's going on in your head because they pick up on your body language and your tone of voice. It's because over time they get they learn through experience, and the same with humans. We learn through experience. Oh, that's what's going on in their mind. This is what's going on in my mind. Well, if you're mistreated... You will lack mentalization skill, and that will set you up for things like avoidant personality disorder or any personality disorder. Because like with borderline, for example, people with borderline will often believe that other people are being very critical and very abandoning and they, that other people will want to leave them. A frequent thing that people suffering from borderline will say to their therapists is, I'm terrified that you're going to fire me as a client. I'm terrified or I'm quite convinced that you're trying to get rid of me as a client, those kinds of things. And that is a failure to mentalize. It's not their fault that they haven't developed that skill because of the mistreatment that they went through. Be, you know, but that's part of the issue is once – they once and this is, lends to treatment, which I'll get into later, is if you can help people to really mentalize, then – And to have a theory of mind, to reflect on others, reflect on the self, and have accurate points of view of what is going on in other people's heads, then it can combat these re-traumatizations that personality disorders will incur on people. I say re-traumatizations because, like with avoidant personality disorder, they have been traumatized about humiliation, and so they're very afraid of being humiliated when they leave the house. And let's say they leave the house and because of their lack of mentalization, they're in the grocery store and they're like, everyone's looking at me. Everyone thinks I'm stupid. Everyone thinks I look like a stupid, awkward, whatever kind of person. And they're convinced of it because of their personality disorder and they go home and they've been re-traumatized, not by something that actually happened, but by something they imagined to have happened or even something that they engineered. Because let's say they're so afraid, you know, they, they go through the checkout line and they're, they're so terrified as they get up to the cashier person. Now, by the way, most avoidant people will go through the self-checkout, by the way. But if they were to go through the regular line, they'll, they'll be so nervous that when the cashier strikes up small talk, the person with avoidant personality disorder will respond in a very anxious way, awkward way. And then that's going to produce some awkwardness from the cashier where they're like, oh, okay. And then the person with avoidant personality disorder is going to notice that and go like, see, there it goes again. Everyone's always a jerk. Everyone is always critical of me. They're always thinking bad thoughts about me. But the person kind of engineered that through projective identification by seducing the other person into criticizing them through their own awkwardness. Not their fault. I want to be clear. The personality disorders are – Mistreatment that causes developmental issues, which causes these things to perpetuate themselves, which causes more and more uh, re-traumatization. So before moving forward with causes and going into schemas, which I can't wait to get into, I want to read an email from an anonymous patron who has avoidant personality disorder. Because I want to ground this in some actual experience here, and I want to sprinkle this in as we go through this. So I asked the anonymous patron who said – That he does suffer from avoidant personality disorder to give me some details. And here's what he said. Essentially, it feels like social anxiety, but it isn't just a fear of superficial social situations. It's a fear of relationships of any kind and the intimacy that comes with it. It's easier for me to socialize in groups than in one-on-one social situations. I crave intimacy I would love to have good friends and even an intimate relationship, but moment to moment, my security is most important. That's where my avoidance comes in. I avoid meeting new people or even reaching out to current friends. My friends often have to come to me. In my head, all relationships are hanging by a thread. I think that's a key statement. In my head, all relationships are hanging by a thread. So that is very different from social anxiety, which I'll get into more later, but I just want to, but that's a very important, in my head, all relationships are hanging by a thread. I'm afraid to speak my mind because I risk losing the relationship. It's as if I don't believe people are going to keep liking me day to day, sometimes even moment to moment. This has been a big problem while dating. It takes me a while to relax on dates. And unfortunately, when I'm anxious, I behave like an asshole I struggle to make eye contact, I struggle to initiate conversations, and my personality becomes completely inhibited. I come off as an asshole who is aloof and distant. Eventually I get over it and I can loosen up, but the inconsistency becomes confusing and frustrating to whoever I'm interacting with. So that's another key thing here, is that he'll, he's identifying like I come across like I'm being an asshole, even though I'm not. I'm terrified. I avoid eye contact. I you know, don't you know, initiate conversations, which other people interpret as I'm being hostile. When I'm not, I'm just terrified. The avoidance affects my life in other ways as well. I work for a grocery delivery service because I can remain alone for most of the day and don't have to answer to a boss. I don't make much money and I don't try to better my career because I'm too afraid of being criticized or failing. It's very hard for me to even think about changing my career. Again, chiming in, that's another hallmark of avoidant personality. Sometimes my avoidance gets me in bad situations. I avoid doing my taxes. If there's something wrong with my car, I avoid getting it fixed until I absolutely have to be, have to, until I absolutely have to because I'm afraid of being criticized by the mechanic. This has cost me a ton of money in the past. I cope with the anxiety about these problems by refusing to think about them. Sometimes I even go to sleep to avoid it. Well, I was only diagnosed about a month ago. At the moment, I'm just attempting to forgive myself for all the time wasted. My 20s are almost over, and I wasted most of that time avoiding things. The diagnosis is surprisingly validating to me because I always thought there was something wrong with me. I've been in therapy for a little over a year now, and he has helped me with my family's dysfunction. He's taught me it's okay to be angry with my parents or my sister or anybody. My family and I have begun, to, have begun the slow process of improving our relationships. I am hypersensitive to other people's body language and facial expressions. That's another hallmark. I am hypersensitive to other people's body language and facial expressions. I am almost always misinterpreting other people in a negative way and then avoid acknowledging my feelings. That's a great statement. I almost always misinterpret others in a negative way and then I avoid acknowledging my feelings about it. My therapist has encouraged me to point out when I feel anxious because of something that he is doing. I'll say, I'll say things like, you seem mad at me or you seem irritated at me. He'll clarify that he is not. He'll Then we'll talk about other situations in my life where I'm possibly misinterpreting people's body language. I'm slowly starting to understand my projections. So just chiming in here, we'll, we'll get into more on, on, the, on the corrective emotional experience. ...that this therapist is doing in the treatment section. My therapist mostly does psychodynamic therapy with me, and he sprinkles in some CBT as well. It has definitely helped with my depression. Most importantly, he seems to care about our relationship. I've never had a therapist make such an effort to talk about our relationship in therapy, which really helps. My parents separated when I was four and divorced when I was six... My mom still to this day talks badly about my dad. My dad never seemed to care that we didn't have a relationship, me and my dad. My dad is emotionally distant and doesn't really understand my struggles. My mom is very emotional and very easily offended. She doesn't know how to handle it if I'm not in a good mood. If I was crabby, she would be offended and give me the silent treatment. Okay, so let's look at this because I think this is an, that's the end of the email, but let's look at this final paragraph here. So his parents were separated and divorced when he was quite young, so separation divorce isn't inherently abusive to kids. It, it often does concern kids, does, does affect them negatively. but it's the it's how people break up, right? Did they fight a lot leading up to it? That kind of thing. And there's evidence that it was very difficult because he says, "My mom to this day still talks badly about my dad, and this is what like 25 years later. And then he also says, my dad never seemed to care about me. So he had a very distant relationship with his dad, which could feel very abandoning. So early in life, total speculation, his parents were uh, stressed out by this bad marriage and dad's kind of cold. Mom's hurt and angry and upset. And they don't ha- neither one of them have time to attune to their child. Although they weren't necessarily abusive, they weren't attuned and attentive to the child's needs. Um, so- also says, my mom is very emotional and easily offended. She doesn't know how to handle it if I'm crabby, and she'll give me the silent treatment when I'm in a bad mood. So that says more to the, the mom's traumas as she was growing up. And if we trans – it's all about that early childhood experience because that's where avoidant personality disorder develops. It's perpetrated through one's life, but it develops early So you can imagine a mother of a child who was two years old. Two-year-olds get crabby a lot. (laughs) And if you have a hard time coping with that, then you're going to lack an attunement, a proper attunement to that child. And then, of course, the dad who is distant is just completely not attuned. And so general lack of attunement. And then it also sounds like maybe mom was controlling, uh, meaning that she would use emotional control to control his emotional state early in life. And so that's part of that, you know, thing. And maybe some overprotection, hard to know. And uh, if we had more time to just explore that with him, then we might be able to. So through that, and we'll get into schemas in a second, but through these kinds of things, we develop schemas that result in the foundation for avoidant personality disorder. All right. Well, I am taking more time than I thought I was going to. So let's actually end this episode here. Let's call this part one and then tune in the next time when we do part two of my avoidant personality disorder deep dive. Hope that doesn't bother anyone. And everyone out there, please take care of yourself because you deserve it. You really, really do.